0: Our Old Testament lesson comes from the book of Jeremiah chapter 17. Jeremiah chapter 17, hear now the word of our God. The sin of Judah is written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond. It is engraved on the tablet of their heart and on the horns of their altars, while their children remember their altars and their asherim beside every green tree and on the high hills, on the mountains, in the open country, Your wealth and all the treasures I will give for spoil as the price of your high places for sin throughout all your territory. You shall loosen your hand from your heritage that I gave to you, and I will make you serve your enemies in a land that you do not know, for in my anger a fire is kindled that shall burn forever. Thus says the Lord, Cursed is the man who trusts in man, who makes flesh his strength, whose heart turns away from the Lord. He is like a shrub in the desert and shall not see any good come. He shall dwell in the parched places of the wilderness in an uninhabited salt land. Blessed is the man who trusts in the Lord, whose trust is the Lord. He is like a tree planted by water that sends out its roots by the stream and does not fear when heat comes, for its leaves remain green and is not anxious in the year of drought, for it does not cease to bear fruit. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, search the heart and test the mind to give every man according to his ways, according to the fruit of his deeds. Like the partridge that gathers a brood that she did not hatch, so is he who gets riches, but not by justice. In the midst of his days they will leave him, and at his end he will be a fool. A glorious throne set on high from the beginning is the place of our sanctuary. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the Lord, the fountain of living water. This is the word of the Lord. O Lord, the hope of Israel. All who forsake you shall be put to shame. Those who turn away from you shall be written in the earth, for they have forsaken the lord the fountain of living water this image that jeremiah uses here in jeremiah 17 is is one that will is it it draws from the very beginning of the scripture all the way back in the garden of eden and it will continue all the way to the to the end in the book of revelation with the fountain of living water that cuz you think about these two trees that jeremiah is talking about there's this there's this shrub of the desert that has no source of water, and so it's this withered little pitiful thing that is barren. And if you think about it, what sorts of what sorts of fruit, as it were, do you get from desert shrubs? Thorns. Why is it that you know, they they, they, they got to do something to protect themselves from getting eaten? Because there's just nothing there, so they get they get thorns. Isn't that how we are? <laughs> When we are feeling like we've got nothing and our hope is in the things around us, then we get prickly, we get defensive, we get really easily, easily upset about things, we get thorns in the midst of the heat of life. Jeremiah also uses the image of the blessed man, as you may have noticed, this language is, it's either drawn from Psalm 1 or else Psalm 1 draws it from here, one way or the other, these two passages are intimately woven together, but the one whose trust is the Lord is like a tree planted by water. Now, the image here is of a tree planted by water, sure, but what's the picture of? Where does the water come from? They have forsaken the Lord, verse 13, the fountain of living water. The fountain of living water that flows into our lives is nothing less than the river of life that flows from the throne of God in heaven. The river of living water that Jesus says in John's gospel flows from his own heart. Streams of living water will flow from his heart because he is the tree of life. He is the one whom we have been grafted into. He is the river of living water, the one whose streams enrich and and refresh us. That's why Jeremiah says, O Lord, the hope of Israel. Where is your hope? I think so often in, in our lives, we get so focused on our temporary hopes, on our temporal hopes, the things that we hope will happen those hopes that are rather flimsy when you think about them. But the problem is when your when your hope is on getting that job or getting married or or that career advancement or that situation. It, when your hope gets focused on that, have you noticed it winds up being very much like that desert shrub again, because we wind up we wind up putting our hope in something that can't actually sustain us, can't nourish us, can't refresh us. But when our hope is in the Lord, when He is our hope, when He is that source of living water, the hope of Israel, then that hope sustains us in everything that we do. So just to be clear, and I'm I'm saying this right now because we're going to keep talking about this in Colossians, but I want to say it right up front because this is a hope that it's, it's, it's... at times it will sound like, oh, pastor, you're just talking about this this hope that someday when Jesus comes back, everything will be right. Yes, that's exactly what I'm talking about. But that's the only hope that can sustain, encourage, nourish, and refresh you for the present, in the present. Because all the other hopes, where do they end? Uh... Newsflash, you're going to die. All other hopes end in death. Only one hope ends in resurrection. Our New Testament lesson comes from Colossians chapter 1. Colossians 1, hear now the word of our God. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. May you be strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints and the light. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation, for by Him all things were created, in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him, and He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the Church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything He might be preeminent. For in Him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of His cross. And you, who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, He has now reconciled in His body of flesh by His death, in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before Him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. This is the word of the Lord. So, where is your hope? What is your hope set upon what is the hope that keeps you going when you get up in the morning? What's the hope that keeps you going when things aren't the way they should be? Paul, in this opening of, of Colossians chapter 1, uh, uses the image of bearing fruit. Uh, and as in Jeremiah 17, as in Psalm 1, the, the blessed man bears fruit because he is planted near a stream. Um, in Colossians 1 verse 10, we are, are bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God because the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing. The gospel is the message, the good news of what Jesus has done. And indeed, the whole book of Colossians is, is really it's about four things. Who is Christ? What has Christ done? Who are you in Christ? And what does that mean for your life? That's the whole book of Colossians in four basic statements or questions. And right here in the very opening verses, Paul gets at this central theme. How can you be bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God? Because the gospel is bearing fruit and increasing in you and in all the world. The Colossian congregation was fairly new. Uh, Paul hadn't been there himself, but it had been planted by Pastor Epaphras, as we hear in verse 7. Colossae is not very far from the city of Ephesus. Probably Epaphras had been converted under Paul's ministry in Ephesus and then was ordained to go to Colossae and plant a church there. And Epaphras apparently had some concerns uh, about false teaching that was spreading in the Colossian area, and so he came to Paul and Timothy for help. This false teaching seems to have blended aspects of traditional Jewish teaching with various aspects of Greek philosophy to create this little hybrid, strange teaching. And Epaphras comes to Paul and Timothy and asks them to write a letter to his church to uh, both, in a sense, refute the false teaching and re-ground them in the gospel. So there's there's a way in which the the letter to the Colossians is is one of Paul's, in a sense, simplest and clearest letters because he's writing to a church that doesn't know him personally. So he he feels the need to sort of lay things out uh, very clearly and simply, which is useful. And uh, and and he comes to Paul and. Timothy and I, I say both because the verse one makes clear this letter is from both Paul and Timothy, uh, and in many of in many of Paul's epistles, like in Galatians, he always uses I, first person singular. Here in Colossians, it's all we, except in those moments when Paul talks about his own apostleship, and so I would suggest that Timothy may have actually played a pretty significant role in writing this epistle. Uh, and that's where the we is very much communicating. Paul and Timothy are writing this together to to the church in Colossae. And Paul identifies himself first as an apostle of Christ Jesus. He is one sent by Christ Jesus uh, and by the will of God. We'll see later that the Colossian church was troubled by teachers who made a, a big deal about angelic powers. And Paul says, I'm an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God. Uh, Sure. In the Old Testament, sometimes leaders were appointed by angelic visitors, but Paul says, "No, I'm I'm an apostle by the will of God Himself." And Timothy, our brother, is writing this together with me, and we're we're writing to the saints and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. Now, at first, we can oftentimes just blow by these greetings, but saints and faithful brothers. So, are the faithful brothers not saints, or what? The what, when Paul writes to the church, he writes to them as saints. So who are the faithful brothers? Well, brother is a term that Paul sometimes uses to refer to just his fellow Christians. But when he's already used a different word to refer to a fellow Christians, as in saints here, brothers is the term he uses for his, for ministers of the gospel, basically pastors or elders. So when it's used here, he's Say, In fact, he'll refer other times to Timothy as our brother, how Timothy is a fellow minister of the gospel. So the faithful brothers in Colossae are those pastors who have remained faithful to the gospel and have not been led astray by the false teachers. So, so Paul and Timothy are writing to the church and to her pastors in Colossae, and they say, grace to you and peace from God our Father. Now, Paul uses this greeting in all his epistles. We get very used to it. Oh, it's, it's, Paul, it's, the, it's the ordinary greeting. Except nobody had ever used this greeting before. In Greek, the standard greeting is kairene which just means greetings. Kairene sounds a lot like charis, but charis is the word for grace. So Paul tweaks the Greek greeting and gives us grace. And then he takes the standard Hebrew greeting, shalom, and just translates it into Greek, Irene. And so he says, he's he's blending together a, you might say, the Greek greeting, the Hebrew greeting, and turning it into a Christian greeting, grace to you and peace from God our Father. And he doesn't just wish them well. He blesses them with the grace and the peace of God himself. and and then as is common in Paul's letters he gives thanks for his readers we always thank God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ when we pray for you Paul is grateful to God because God is doing what he promised the gospel is growing increasing, flourishing and so I give thanks for you now Paul is famous for his long sentences Uh, verses 3 to 8 is one sentence verses 9 to 23 is the second sentence so, um, but these two sentences all together, actually, you'll notice they, they form something of a chiasm using the sort of the same language at the beginning and then at the end and then moving together at, to, the, to the center. And you'll, you'll see Paul does this rather intentionally because he, he, he says in verses 3 to 8 how we've, we've heard of your receiving the gospel with faith, hope, and love. And so then in verses 9 to 12, he says, So we pray that you might please God, being fruitful in good works. Verses 13 and 14, because of your redemption and deliverance through the Son. And then verses 15 to 18 is really the center, by Christ, who is the center of all. And then verses 19 to 20 comes back to the theme of reconciliation by the Son. And then verses 21 and 22, from wicked works, so that you might be blameless in his sight. And then concluding with continuing in the gospel, in hope, and in faith. So Paul is intentionally crafting these two sentences in order to put Christ at the center of the sentence. He's the center of creation. He's the center of redemption. Indeed, he's the center of this paragraph. Because Paul wants you to see that Christ is the center of everything. As I said before, the whole book of Colossians can be summed up as setting forth who is Christ, what has Christ done, who you are in Christ, and what that means for your life. And so Paul and Timothy first assure the Colossians that they give thanks for them, praying for them, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of your love for all the saints because of the hope which is laid up for you in heaven. I don't know if you've you've noticed how often the apostles blend together faith, hope, and love. The most famous, of course, is Paul's language in First Corinthians 13. These three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. But there are many other instances. In, For instance, at the beginning of First uh, Thessalonians, Paul says, We give thanks to God always for you, re- constantly remembering you in our prayers, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ think about how Paul relates those three your work of faith and labor of love sort of if you think about faith and love focus on the present and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ now steadfastness is also a very present idea but and hope is present but hope's always aiming at the future nobody ever hopes for what he already has I don't say I hope I'll have a glass of water here I have a glass of water here I don't hope for it but that's where our hope is always a forward-looking thing. Hope is always, you might say, eschatological. It's always pointing to the end of something. It's just Sometimes our, our eschatology is rather short-sighted. Sometimes our eschatology is, I want to get married, and that's the end that we're aiming at. Or, I want my career to go in a certain direction, and that's the end we're looking at. Those eschatologies are rather flimsy. Because, okay, I mean, for those of you who are who are married, you're like, okay, now I got married. Okay, boy, now uh, it's, there's all it's it's a lot harder than I thought it was going to be, and that's where it we need to have we need to have an end in view, a goal, a a future that is something subst- substantial. At the end of First Thessalonians, in chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, Paul is warning them against losing their focus, and he says, Since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. What is it that motivates faith and love? Hope. If you have no hope... Why would you believe in something if you have no hope, why would you love? I have a friend who says basically his his he, he just he, his hope is that he will he will leave the world a, a little bit better than he found it I mean that's nice, but that's the biggest hope he's got and Oh, he's trying. And, you know, all things considered, he's doing a fairly decent job. But it's really easy to get discouraged because sometimes you're like, I I, I just, I don't think what I'm doing is working. And it's, it's not getting better. Things are getting worse. And so what's left for you then? It's called cynicism. And when you hope in something short of Jesus then cynicism gets really easy Paul also blends together faith hope and love in Romans 5 here he sort of puts faith at the center since we have been justified by faith we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance and endurance produces character and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given us. That because God has loved us and He's poured His love into us, therefore we love because He first loved us. Now, I, won't, I won't read it right now. We'll, we'll, we'll sing it after the sermon, but... 1 Peter chapter 1 is entirely woven together out of faith, hope, and love. Hope is used in verses 3, 13, and 21, faith in verses 5, 7, 8, 9, and 21, and love in verses 8 and 22. 1 Peter 1 is a, the whole chapter is woven together about faith, hope, and love. There's a dozen other passages that connect to these. And this is something that the apostles all seem to have recognized. That the Christian life is built on faith, hope, and love. Now, as we, as you see in Romans five, faith is you might say where 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 everything starts because it's you believe in Jesus and that's then what and the hope flows out of that. But faith comes first, as it were. And as Paul points out in 1 Corinthians thirteen, love is the one that will last forever because in glory, faith will become sight. And you won't be hoping for what you have. So that's why Paul says the greatest of these is love. But here in Colossians chapter 1, Paul takes hope as his central theme and says that our faith in Christ Jesus and our love for the saints as we continue to walk through the Christian life are both rooted in the hope made up for you in heaven. Paul gives thanks to God for you because of your faith and your love be, which you have because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So what is this hope? Uh, some people might say, oh, it's it's my reward or it's eternal life. It's peace and rest. Um, and these are these are all in one sense true, but they all miss the heart of hope because what is your reward? What is your eternal life? What is your peace and rest? Or perhaps I should ask, who? <laughs> and that'll give you the clearer picture. Because your reward is Jesus Christ. Your eternal life is Jesus Christ. Your peace and rest and eternal bliss is Jesus Christ. I'm just going to fast forward to the center of the whole book of Colossians. If you just look over at chapter three, verses one through four. This is the very heart and soul of what Paul wants his his hearers to, to hear. When Christ, who is your life, appears, you also will appear with Him in glory. If you're putting your hope in anything else, it will disappoint you. Your hope is that rock-solid person of Jesus Christ. It's the same point we saw as we were going through the creed in talking about the importance of uncreated grace that strange term which i like to use because it makes us think because <clears throat> you like uncreated because we get so used to talking about the grace of god and thinking about it as things god gives us or or the the benefits that we have from being in christ but what is uncreated well, only god is uncreated so god the father god the son god the holy spirit that's what's uncreated So what is uncreated grace? The gift of God Himself. That God has not just given you stuff. He hasn't just given you a future someday. He's given you Himself in giving you His Holy Spirit as uncreated grace, as you have been joined to the life of God. Why did Jesus come in our flesh? So that He might join us to Himself. So that by His Holy Spirit, we might have the life of God at work within us. And Paul and Timothy point out that this is the message that you have heard. End of verse 5 there. Of this, you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing as it also does among you since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God in truth. This is what Epaphras taught you. This, the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. The good news that has taken root in you and, and, and the gospel is now bearing fruit and increasing. I mean, just, just think about the image for a minute. We tend to think of the gospel as a static thing. Here's the the gospel is the good news about Jesus. How can the gospel increase? Paul will deal with this in various ways throughout his epistle. But the gospel increases, the gospel grows, the gospel bears fruit. This is. This is the fulfillment of what God had said to Adam and Eve, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Because the gospel is increasing, the gospel is growing, the gospel is bearing fruit as the church of Jesus Christ grows. It's talking about the the way in which, to put it simply, more and more people are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. He's using this language of fruit, uh, both here in verse six and again in verse ten, and all the way back to Eden and the, the, the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What we sang about in one with the two trees, the, the, and the Jeremiah 17 with the two trees. Think about Isaiah's stump of Jesse, with or the or the, the cursed fig tree of the, in, in Jesus' teaching. The vine and the branches, the olive tree, the tree of life in the heavenly Jerusalem. The gospel is growing and bearing fruit throughout the world. Because the gospel is something of a living organism. Jesus Christ is himself the tree of life. And he has sown the seed of the word in you. You have been grafted into that tree of life. Now you are a part of that indestructible tree that is growing and flourishing in all the world because of that river of living water that sustains and nourishes and grows the tree. By the power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus Christ has united you to himself and to one another. And that's why Paul says that you have also grown since the day you heard and knew the grace of God in truth. This isn't just bare, empty knowledge. This is true and saving knowledge, which is the fruit of your being united to Christ. Now, notice there's, in a sense, you might say two fruits that, of the gospel that we have in verses 6 to 8. One fruit is our faith in Christ Jesus. And what is, what is faith? Simply put, faith is accepting the truth of the gospel, that Christ died for sinners but it's also receiving the truth of the gospel that Christ died for me and thirdly it's resting in the truth of the gospel that Christ's death has done it all he has accomplished our salvation our confession of faith says it nicely when it says the principal acts of saving faith are accepting receiving and resting upon Christ alone for justification sanctification and eternal life by virtue of the covenant of grace Faith doesn't simply mean that we intellectually agree with the gospel. Faith is the inward conviction produced by the Holy Spirit that Jesus died for me. Faith, like hope, is not merely a wish. When I say I believe the gospel, it's not that I I think it's probably true. Rather, when I say I believe the gospel, I'm saying that I will stake my whole life upon it. The Colossian Christians were were facing a a challenge uh, from another belief system. Sort of like we are today. And Paul reminds them of the very root and center of the whole of the Christian life, Christ Jesus himself. Now, the, the second fruit of the gospel is our love for all the saints. So why does Paul add this? Isn't faith enough? After all, we are justified by grace through faith. Why does Paul place love for the saints as one of the marks of the Christian? Well, the simple answer is because Jesus did. John 13, Jesus said, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this all will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. In John 17, Jesus prayed that the church might be one, that the world may believe that you sent me. If the church doesn't love one another, then the world has the right to say that Christ has not been sent by the Father. The gospel produces, if you think about the gospel as this growing living organism that bears fruit, one of the fruits of the gospel is love. And we love one another. We love all the saints because we have been united to Christ. And if we have been united to him, we've been united to each other as well. And first John three puts it this way that we know that we have passed from death to life because we love the brethren he who does not abide he who does not love abides in death there's a way in which that that hope of the gospel, that hope that is focused on who is Jesus he's the one who has died for me he's the one who is coming again to judge the living and the dead that hope that He's the one who will make all things right. That hope that that He's the one who is the one who has done all things for my salvation and has united me to Himself. That hope produces in us continued faith and continued love in the way that we walk before the watching world. John Chrysostom nicely summarizes what Paul's saying here. Don't doubt the hope which is to come you see that the world is being converted. That's, that's, and you get it. Mean, when Chrysostom said this in the, at the end of the fourth century, I mean, he, that was just a, a small part of the world was being converted. Over the last 1,500 years, a whole lot more has happened. The gospel has now spread. I know, sometimes it gets a little discouraging in this country, but when you look at what's happening around the world, it's astounding to see how the gospel continues to grow and spread. And I know sometimes what sometimes what they, they're teaching and sometimes what they're doing strikes us a little, as a little funny. And sometimes we look a little funny to them too. But that's where it's important to hear. I mean, Chrysostom points out sort of, it's a, but why do we need to refer to the case of others? I mean, This is basically summarizing what Paul's saying. What happened in your own case is independently a sufficient ground for belief. For you knew the grace of God in truth, that is, in works, so that these two things, namely the belief of all, and your own too, confirm the things that are to come. As Epaphras has made known to us your love in the Spirit. For this love is wonderful and steadfast. All other love has but the name. For nothing Nothing is so strong as the bond of the spirit. What the Holy Spirit has done is bind together a people and those of you who have who have traveled very far will know you go to other places and you find sort of unknown, you know, unknown Christians maybe people you you'd never met before and you show up and, all, and, and and all of a sudden your family this is a very strange thing if you think about it I mean. You walk into a foreign country where they barely know you. Know, you can barely communicate, and yet your family—that's <laughs> that's what Jesus has done. But as we'll see next time, because we'll, 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 I'm not going to obviously try to finish the whole passage right now. But we'll see next time that we then must continue to grow in grace, and our life must continue to change. That we must grow in wisdom and knowledge. We must increase in holiness and good works. And we must persevere patiently through trials and, above all, remember the great redemption that Jesus has wrought for us. So let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that that you would have mercy upon us and, and fill us with the knowledge of your will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding so that we might walk in a manner worthy of you, fully pleasing to you, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of of your holy name. May we be strengthened with all power according to your glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy. May we give thanks to you, our Father, who have qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. For you have delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of your beloved Son, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And for this we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.